I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. We welcome you to Gospel Dynamite, a Christian broadcast dedicated to the salvation of the lost and the revival of God's people. I'm Alan Mashburn, your Bible teacher and the pastor of Asbury Baptist Church, located at 218 Asbury Church Road in Seagrove, North Carolina. We invite you to visit our church at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. On Sunday evenings, we provide online services which can be viewed on gospeldynamite.org. Now please join me in the study of the Word of God. You're listening to Gospel Dynamite. Thank you for joining us this morning. And we welcome all of our broadcast listeners as well as our podcast listeners. Today, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with us to Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 33. For sake of time, we'll be reading verses 6 through 14, and we will cover the other passages as it's appropriate. Today, we deal with bound by the Lord's purposes. Verse 6. Romans chapter 9. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time... Will I come, and Sarah shall have a son? Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. Children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Now the first part of verse 6 carries our minds back to what Paul said in verses 1 through 5. There we're reminded that the Jews had been the recipients of many divine gifts. Verses 4 and 5 contain quite an impressive list of blessings which they had been given. However, just the fact that they had been given these great spiritual gifts and manifestations did not guarantee that they would be saved. That having been said, let us remember that the word of God will be fulfilled even to the smallest detail. That which God has predestined and foreordained will always come to pass, whether it's in the arena of prophecy or in the arena of salvation. Now, Paul wants his Jewish readers to understand that salvation is a divine experience. That is, it always begins and it always ends with God. He is the originator. He is the continuation. He is the culmination of our faith, Hebrews 12 and verse 2. It is all God, all the way. And in these verses, Paul seeks to explain the matter of divine sovereignty in this matter of salvation. He wants us to know beyond all doubt that God is in absolute control of the salvation of men's souls. So Paul tells us that we are all bound by the Lord's purpose. So let's do some examinations of our own of these verses this morning. Now, in verses 6 through 10, we see that Paul's point here is that just being part of the nation of Israel does not mean that one is saved. There are people in the world today, there are preachers that I could call by name, that believe that since Israel is the chosen nation of God, 
They are God's chosen people. That they are automatically saved. Uh, that's not the case. Israel, as a nation, will never cease to exist. Uh, they will always be a nation of Israel. However, everyone, every human being, has to come by way of the cross. In other words, it's not about family. Just because a person was a descendant of Abraham, it doesn't make that person right with God. And consider the difference between Ishmael and Isaac. Uh, both were sons of Abraham, but only one was chosen by God to carry forth his divine purposes. And for all intents and purposes, family relationship is absolutely worthless when it comes to salvation. So this needs to be remembered, especially folks in our day. Just because you descended from a strong Christian heritage doesn't guarantee you a place, doesn't guarantee you a home in heaven when you die. You must be born again. You must be born again by faith. You must be born again for yourself or you will not be saved. You will not be born again. You, you simply can't ride into heaven on anyone's coattails. So the verse tells us, specifically in verse 11, the verse tells us that God made his choice between Ishmael and Isaac before either boy had been born. God in his divine wisdom decided which son would be blessed and which son would not be. And here we learn the truth that it is not about works. In other words, fruit means nothing. All of the works that men can do will never buy them a place in heaven. Salvation comes not by works, but by the mercy and the grace of God. We might as well be reminded as well that our good works and our self-righteousness will never, never produce salvation for our souls. This is made abundantly clear. When you consider that the best man can produce us uh, wretched and putrid in the sight of Almighty God. The Bible says that our righteousness are as filthy rags before holy God. Isaiah 64 and verse 6. Now again, Paul nails this down for us in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 9. Where he says the most resounding verse out of that text is, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There we're told how the lost man is and how he is saved, and it's purely a work of grace. God does all of it. Man has absolutely nothing to do with salvation. It's only by faith. Now, verses 11 through 13, these verses tell us the truth about salvation and that it's not based in our family or in our fruits, but it's based solely in the will of the Father. While family and fruits are worth nothing in the area, in the arena of getting you saved, the purpose of the Father means everything. Here, reference is made to God's choice in the sons of Isaac. Esau, the firstborn, was rejected by God, while Jacob, the secondborn, was preferred by God. Now, this choice was made by God the Father before these boys were born into the world. Why was this distinction made between these boys who were yet unborn? Well, the answer to that question lies solely with God himself. However, as the lives of Ishmael and Esau and their descendants were lived out on the pages of the Word of God and of history, God's wisdom in his choice was proven correct. Both of these men, along with their descendants, walked in open hatred of God, his people, and his law. Now, God's purpose was proven right by their performance. 
Many are bothered by the words of Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, which are quoted in verse 13 by Paul. What does it mean? What does it mean when God says, God hated Esau? When one reads the account of Jacob and Esau in Genesis, there's no indication of divine hatred. I believe that God's hatred is upon the idolatrous descendants of Esau who hated and opposed the people of Israel. Now, while his love is focused on the descendants of Jacob who followed the Lord and worshiped him. Now, what does this mean for us? Simply this. Just as God's plan and purpose was the reason Isaac and Jacob were chosen, while Ishmael and Esau were rejected, there's no other explanation for our salvation. We're saved because God chose us in Christ before the world began. And we see that further in study in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 12, as well as Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Now, in verses 14 through 29, we see God's divine sovereignty. When you truly grasp all the implications of what Paul is saying, you begin to realize that we've stepped off into deep waters. In fact, this matter of salvation being based in nothing but the selection of God bothers a lot of people. Now, Paul anticipated a strong reaction from his readers, so he heads them off at the pass in verse 14 where the Bible says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. They might ask the question, is God unfair to those who have been chosen and rejected others before they were even born? Now, this is a reaction of people like ourselves who've been raised with the notion that all men are created equal. However, that's man's word. It's not God's word. Paul's answer is a strong one. He says, God forbid, which is literally, may it never be. May it never be. God is always just. God is always fair in his dealings with fallen man. And Paul uses two more illustrations from Israel's history to prove his point. Now, in verses 15 through 18, Paul first draws our attention back to Exodus 33. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the law, the Israelites had given themselves over to idolatry. Moses called for those who were on the Lord's side to join him. The Levites did so. These faithful men were commanded to slay the rebels, and they killed 3,000 men that day. Rightly, all the wicked Israelites should have been killed, but God, God in his sovereignty, only allowed 3,000 to die as a warning to the rest. Justice demanded that all be killed, but grace saved some anyway. Then we're called to look at the case of Pharaoh, the man who thought he ruled Egypt, a man who thought he himself was a god. Pharaoh was reminded by God that he had been placed on the throne of Egypt so that God might use him to demonstrate the power of God over humanity and earthly rulers and kingdoms. It was merely a display of divine sovereign choice that delivered Israel and doomed Pharaoh. Can you see the truth that Paul is trying to help us understand? It's made clear in verses 16 and 18. The Bible says in verse 16, so then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. 
Verse 18, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. These verses tell us that it isn't about our personal position. It's not about our personal performance or about one's pursuit of God. It is all about God's choice. Then someone will always say, but what if a person wants to be saved? Does that mean that they cannot be saved unless they have been chosen by God? Well, the answer to that is quite easy. If a person wants to be saved, they can be saved. But they will not want to be saved until they're first issued an invitation by the Spirit of God and called by God. That's the way salvation works. That was made crystal clear by the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 44. God's purpose is everything. Again, some will cry unfair. What about man's free will? Verse 16 tells us that it has nothing to do with man's will, but God's alone. You see, man cannot believe because man will not believe. His will is bound in sin wholly and totally. Some will charge that this makes God guilty of condemning some while saving others. But in all fairness to God, man is born into this world already condemned. John chapter 3 and verse 18, and John chapter 3 and verse 36. Can we face the fact that we are sinners? Can we just face the fact that we're born in sin? Can we understand that we're sinners by birth and we're sinners by choice? It is not God that condemns man. Sin condemns man. Men do not go to hell because they are sent by God. They go to hell because they are sinners. That having been said, someone who demands that God act fairly toward all men is a fool. If we got fair and just treatment, we would all be in hell right now, this very moment, we would all be in hell. Salvation is not about God being fair. Salvation is about God extending grace on who he will. Salvation is not based in justice. For if we receive justice, we would receive hell, a place of torment without God. Salvation is purely the work of grace. That is the unmerited and the undeserved love of God for lost sinners. I'll say it again for the record. Every person who wants to be saved can be saved. Those who don't want to be saved cannot be saved. If there's a desire in a man's heart to come to God, he can do that. That's grace. If a person is happy in their sins and won't know part of God or his salvation, then God is perfectly just to allow that person to continue his life or her life as they wish. They've rejected God's love. They've made their choice. But God is just and fair. Verses 19 through 24, Paul anticipates another objection that might be made by his readers. If salvation is a sole work of God, then what right does he have to condemn those who are not saved? Again, I remind you that if sinners got only justice, all sinners would be in hell. However, if God chooses to demonstrate divine sovereign grace in the lives of someone 
Who are we to question his authority or right to do so? Just as a potter has power over his clay to make of what he will, so the Lord has power over his creation. He will do with it as it pleases him. God does not have to answer to man. He owes us absolutely nothing but damnation. He doesn't have to tie this matter up in crisp statements so that you and I will understand every little nuance of it. God does as he pleases, and he does not ask our opinion on the matter. He doesn't have to. He is God. If he chooses to call some to salvation and leave others in their rebellion, that is his total prerogative. It needs to be noted here that God does not create people to damn them. This does not erase, eradicate, change, or alter John 3.16 or any other verse that offers salvation freely to the world. In fact, verse 22 takes the burden off the shoulders of God and places it squarely on the shoulders of men. The Bible says in Romans 9, verse 22, What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? The phrase fitted to destruction is in a tense that suggests the vessels themselves choose to be made up for destruction. Because sinners refuse to repent of their sins and turn to the Lord for salvation, it is their choice if they perish. And here's a thought that will blow your mind. God gets just as much glory from displaying his wrath in verse 22 as he does by demonstrating his grace. Verse 23, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. Now doesn't this seem like a contradiction? If so, then let it be said that you and I will never be able to grasp all the aspects of God's grace and his sovereignty. And I, I've already said these are hard truths, and I never made the disclaimer that I understood every detail. I don't. They grate against our minds, our standards of fairness, our faulty understanding of the, of the free will of man. And I believe in the free will of man, but the free will of man will never alter or eradicate or change in any way the will of God. These are the truths of the word of God, and they must be taken as such. They're given to inspire us to take the word of God to a lost and dying world. They're given to make those who are saved thankful that we've been given the gospel and we have accepted the gospel as being saved people. And friends, that truth alone should be wrought. It should be there to satisfy you in the matter. If God chooses to leave man to a path he's chosen, 
then God is giving that man just what he wants. I might add here that God is a gentleman. The Lord Jesus is a gentleman. And a gentleman will never push himself on anyone. If there's one thing we must learn, it is that God is Lord of all, including salvation. My friends, as long as the natural man looks into the things of God, there will always be a tension between God's sovereign will and his requirement of faith for salvation. I believe the best solution we can reach is to accept the word of God on face value. Let the Holy Spirit do the calling. Let the Holy Spirit do the convicting. And by all means, let the Lord do the saving. Too long we have been about numbers in the local church in America. And numbers are fine. Numbers are important. God thinks a lot of numbers. He wrote a book and called it Numbers. But that department needs to stay with God. He calls, he convicts, and he saves. We are called to serve. We are called to be faithful. We are called to serve the king. Now in verses 25 through 29, we see that Paul quotes Hosea and Isaiah to remind us that were it not for the pure, simple grace of God, there would be none saved. So I must remind you that all men who are born into the family of Adam and lost sinners headed to hell by their own choice, it is the grace of God that intervenes, calls men to salvation. Were it not for his grace, we would all feel the fires of hell. Whether a person is a Jew or a Gentile, the only hope for salvation is the grace of God. And verses 30 through 33 these verses tell us the righteousness is given to those who believe the gospel message. The Bible says, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. How is it possible that Gentiles who knew not God received his salvation while Jews who knew his word missed him totally and his salvation? Divine sovereignty. God spoke to the hearts as he chose. He also spoke to the hearts that he knew would be receptive. But I can say this. The word of God teaches he certainly came to the Jewish people. They had received the word of God. They had received more light than any nation nor sect of people in the world. When the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was preached to the Gentiles, they were convicted of their sins and turned to Christ by faith. The Jews who saw themselves as righteous already, did not repent of their sins and turn to Christ. However, all those who come to Jesus by faith in the gospel message are declared perfectly righteous by God. That is righteousness, faith in the complete work of Christ. Now, why did the Jew miss out? Because he wanted to please God by his own righteous works. No man will ever be saved until he comes to the place where he clings to nothing that he has or can do but he merely cast himself at the feet of God and he cries out to God by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews failed to see how Jesus, a crucified man, could ever be their savior. They saw themselves as better than he and they stumbled over the cross. However, those who understand that they're sinners and that Jesus died for their sins don't stumble at all, but they fall down before the cross 
and they can be saved. And verse 33, believers are promised that those who come to faith in Christ will never be ashamed. That is, when we arrive in heaven and stand before the Lord, we will not be turned away and sent to hell because we have been called by God and we've reacted by faith in the message of God. We're saved, and nothing will ever alter that fact. We will never be disappointed. I realize I've not done the greatest job of articulating the truths in this chapter. Many could do better. Some of you may even have questions about salvation and the sovereignty of God and the will of man. I wish I had all the answers, but I don't. No one who wears a robe of flesh does. These are deep truths, and truths concerning which there's much debate and there's much controversy and disagreement. However, I believe them as they are stated in the Word of God, and I can accept the fact that God is sovereign over salvation. I can accept the fact that He's sovereign over all of life. I can accept that He is God. And I can certainly accept the fact that all of life, is left to his divine choices. He's God. But the bottom line is still this. If you want to be saved, come to Christ. You can be saved if you come to him. Thank you for listening to our broadcast today. We trust it's been a blessing. Trust you'll have a great week in the Lord. Log on to our website, gospeldynamite.org, and let us know if you've accepted Christ or this message has helped you. God bless you, and we trust you have a great day in the Lord.